When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holler at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. At State Farm, we're committed to uplifting black futures. In collaboration with organizations like 100 Black Men and National Urban League, State Farm provides high school students with the opportunity to learn and apply best practice strategies for saving and investing, all while offering academic support, life skills, and exposure to college access programs to prepare these students for life after high school. Check out 100blackmen.org and nul.org to donate and learn more. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back to another episode of Monuments to Me. I am your host, Ty McRae, and on this podcast, you'll hear me and my co-host, Akilah Friend, two smart, opinionated women with different points of view, host crucial conversations on topics relevant to Black women. Today, we're bringing in two dope Black women to join us in conversation to talk about reproductive justice and the recent Supreme Court decision to reverse Roe v. Wade. And to be honest, I have been angry and in my feelings since early May. So I have this bad habit of waking up, grabbing my phone, and I think I'm just going to look at the time and click on my insight timer and meditate and start my day. But nine times out of 10, I end up right on the New York Times website. And on the morning of May 3rd, it was a gut punch. I remember reading it and then having to bottle up all my feelings because I had work that day. I was flown in to facilitate an in-person company offsite and my feelings about abortion, my feelings as a black woman were not what they were paying me for. And I had to wait several hours to find space for my rage and find an outlet for it. And I was mad because I thought I was smart. You know, I got all the degrees. I read all the things. I was a policy fellow once. And here I was still learning about all the nuances of racism, patriarchy, and white supremacy and how they affect the abortion conversation. Things I thought I already knew. Now, I have to be super upfront. I am pro-abortion, I believe abortion is healthcare, and I believe in the right to have a child, the right to not have a child, and a right to parent a child in the way you want. Despite my passion about this topic, you will hear me get schooled by our guest on this episode. I thought I was well-read and well-informed, but this episode was humbling, and I know I need to do even more if I want to be a part of real change. So I'm questioning myself in some big ways because this issue of abortion rights made me think that I was naive and it made me think that I'm not doing enough. 
I'm feeling naive because I didn't think a country would walk back what I considered a fundamental right. Why I have such faith in this government when they let me down every day, I have no idea. You know, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. We have two amazing guests to help us make sense of all that's going on. Judge Shamirla Williams, who was elected to be Superior Court Judge in 2021, is a part of that small, rare club of Black women judges. Before that, she was a prosecutor and criminal defense attorney. Judge Williams was born and raised in Fulton County, Georgia, graduated from Howard, then Georgetown University Law Center. And she likes to say she works at the intersection of justice, compassion, and mercy. Our other guest, Monica Simpson, is a dynamic, queer, Black woman from North Carolina. She is the executive director of Sister Song, a Southern-based, women-of-color reproductive justice collective. Her whole life and career has been about activism. She's worked on everything from the prison industry to violence against Black women to LGBTQ plus issues. Monica is also a very talented singer and spoken word artist. And you might notice that her audio was a little off during the recording, and that is because we caught up with her during Essence Fest. She's a busy organizer, and this moment is especially busy for her, so we are so glad she took time away from the beautiful blackness of Essence Fest and her busy schedule to talk to us. And so, yes, we're talking about abortion rights, but my favorite part of the conversation is Monica talking about the personal toll this work can take. She talks about physical health, which really hit home for me as a recovering workaholic who has over the last two years really neglected my personal health. Monica brings up the challenges of ensuring also her personal safety as she does this work that some people are really upset about. And we sometimes forget women out here doing public work are targets, and especially Black women. Our world glamorizes fame and followers but there is a cost to the limelight, and sometimes we forget this. I hope you enjoy the conversation. There's education, heavy topics, lightness, and joy. And we even talk about lashes and laid edges. Welcome. You are tuned into Monuments to Me, brought to you by Revolt. This podcast is a space for honest and relevant conversations meant to recharge Black women and inspire you on your journey. We're your hosts, Akila Friend and Ty McRae, and each week we'll be addressing a range of topics from self-care, entrepreneurship, to politics and relationships. Join us as we explore the ups and downs and bask in the joys of Black womanhood. We love to start off with a little quick question because it's a heavy topic, but we don't want to forget that life does have moments of joy. So what is one thing each of you did recently that brought you some joy? I'm filled with so much joy right now because I have just had the opportunity of being in the presence of so many beautiful Black women. And whenever I get to organize and talk with Black women, it brings me so much joy. And so even in the midst of this work, like the fact that we've been able to start to reconvene and come back together and build with each other. So we have been brunching it. We have been, you know, going to these festivals in the park because we outside like that has been giving me all the joy in the world, putting on those sundresses and putting on that shea butter and getting out in the sun with beautiful black folks and my black sisters like that continues to bring me joy, even in the midst of the work. 
sundresses and shea butter is just a call to action. I feel like if I see it on anybody's <laughs> anybody's dresser in anybody's bedroom, I'm like, okay, we you here. <laughs> you get it. Yes. Me. <laughs> yes. I guess it's my turn. So yeah. literally uh last Sunday, my mother's side of the family is huge, right? My mother is one of nine kids. And my grandfather died in December of 2020. My grandmother is still alive. She's about to celebrate her 81st birthday. So one of the things that recently brought me joy was for the first time since COVID started, we finally had a family dinner. And really, I should say, I should amend that statement. For the first time since my grandfather's funeral, we finally had a family dinner. And so it just brought me joy to be around my uncles, my aunts, my cousins, my mom, my brother, my grandma. And at the end of it, she looks at me and she said, you know, I was just thanking Jesus for today. She said, it was so good to see all of y'all. So just being with family and being able to experience and enjoy her and the family just really gave me joy this past weekend. That is beautiful. <laughs> I love to hear mm-hmm. it. That's beautiful. We are going to jump right in with our first question. So May 2nd, the Supreme Court opinion leaked. This week, it came out. Actually, last week, the time just runs mm-hmm. together. Or let's say the date, because as of June 30th, specifically. Um <laughs> Yes. Mm -hmm. So I can say that I didn't think I would see this day. Some people say they knew it was coming. Maybe I'm naive, but I didn't think I would see this day. And so, you know, there are severe, there's an abortion ban in many states, severe restrictions and so many more. And this ruling disproportionately affects poor people who can get pregnant, black people and women of color. And so how in 2022 did we get here? How are we seeing the rolling back of rights of bodily autonomy? So I'll start because I I think my perspective is probably going to be very different than Monica. And to me, when you ask the question of how we got here, we have to look back at 2016, voting, the electorate, et cetera. And most people do not look at that. Um, I tell people all the time, if you don't like the decisions being made in your community, you have to look at the folks that you're electing. So I sit as a judge in Superior Court in in Fulton County, which Atlanta is in Fulton County, right? Atlanta is a huge city, major metropolis, et cetera. Judges are elected here in Georgia. We're elected or appointed by the governor. Now, how am I transitioning this back to Roe v. Wade? In 2016, we had a huge election, right? And what people don't realize is for the Supreme Court and many of these federal positions, it is the president who selects the judges. Just like here in Georgia, it's the governor who fills an open judicial seat for a judge, and then the people can ratify that decision. Well, in the Supreme Court, you can't, right? Supreme Court, that's a lifetime appointment. So once the president appoints that person to the Supreme Court, that person is there for forever and a day unless they decide to retire. And so when you ask me, how did we get here? My very first thought is, did you vote in 2016? And if you did vote in 2016, who did you vote for? Now, I'm not here to tell you who you should have voted for. But when you look at the makeup of the court and what was bound to happen, because you had so many folks on there who were, you know, my grandma says I shouldn't call people old, but who were old and who certainly were not going to make it another eight years, four years, et cetera. Who did you vote for? Because that's the person who gets to appoint to the Supreme Court. My brother-in-law died suddenly. And now my sister and her kids have to sell their home. That's why I told my husband we could not put off getting life insurance any longer. 
an agent offered us a 10-year, $500,000 policy for nearly $50 a month. Then we called SelectQuote. SelectQuote found us identical coverage for only $19 a month, a savings of $369 a year. Whether you need a $500,000 policy or a $5 million policy, SelectQuote could save you more than 50% on term life insurance. For your free quote, go to SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote.com. That's SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote. We shop. You save. Full details on example policies at SelectQuote.com slash commercials. Hey there. Ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. So you're absolutely right, Judge. 2016 was a pivotal moment for us. And the voting in 2016 really made an impact on how we saw our courts being set up and getting us really connected to where we are today. Absolutely. But I have to take us back because I'm one of those folks that saw this coming. And I saw this coming because I am a person that has been really deeply rooted in sexual and reproductive justice for well over a decade. And what I know about this movement of reproductive justice that was created by Black women in 1994 and led by Black folks and folks of color all across this country today, that this movement was created because this movement has historically been seen as a white woman's movement when we think about reproductive health and rights. But it is not white women who's leading this fight right now. Black women, folks of color, we are on the front lines of this issue. And we saw this coming down back in 2010. There was a couple of things that happened. One, we saw states having to deal with anti-choice legislation, like bills like personhood, trying to make a fetus a person. We saw trap laws coming into our state houses. We even saw propaganda like these billboards that came all across this country saying that the most dangerous place for an African-American child is in the mother's womb, specifically targeting black women around their reproductive decision making. So from a policy standpoint at the legislative level, from a cultural standpoint with this crazy propaganda that our opposition was pushing, we saw them moving us towards this moment. And so this was a train coming down the tracks that they were pushing and that we were having to be in a deep defensive posture around for far too long. That has now led us to the reversal of Roe v. Wade. So they are very clear that they have been wanting to get Roe v. Wade reversed since it was put into place in 1973. And they used our state. They used our voting. (laughs) They used everything against us to get us to this place. You know, it sounds almost as if the opposition, and I speak to this from a clear perspective of, it's not obvious, I am pro-abortion 1,000%. So the opposition was clearly way more strategic and organized. Were people who were pro-abortion, do we not have the numbers? Were we asleep at the wheel? Is that part of it too? We're very organized. I have to give mad props to all the folks out here who are organizing around these issues. 
when I say we, I'm talking about myself, like someone who's pro-abortion, like, ah, I was like, was I not doing enough? You know, I think it's because a lot of people feel like this issue was just done, right? They was like, we got Roe yeah. v. Wade. They're not going to take it away. We got voting rights. They're not going to take it away. We got gay marriage. They're not going to take it away. And what we have to understand is that none of these things are set in stone because they're all dependent upon who's in power. And so if we don't have the right people in power that are in alignment with the values of the progressive issues that we are moving, then we're going to continue to see the rolling back of those issues. What we don't realize about the 45 administration is that they were positioned in a way to really start to make all of these rollbacks happen. It's not that we weren't ready. We just think that once a law is done, a law is done. But that's not the way that this country works. It is about who's in power to continue to hold those things in place for us. And if the wrong folks are in power, then they're going to start to roll those things back. Yeah, I think you're especially right. But I just want to make sure that we really touch on as well that impact specifically to black women. You know, we talked about the power. We talked about the structures that be. But it's interesting that this specific moment, who's the most affected? Obviously, we have women overall. But I know for me, for instance, I worked in college. I worked at an abortion center. And while I was studying to thinking I would do public health and what I noticed in terms of the calls that I was getting, the scheduling that I was organizing. A number, disproportionately, were Black women from out of state, from different counties who had to take off work, who had to figure things out in this very specific time frame. And this was before the overturn of Roe v. Wade. So I can only imagine at this point, how does it affect, you know, specifically Black people? And I want you all to just talk about that a little bit more. We can name statistics and all that as well. I was going to say there's two stats that I heard that were interesting. One, that Black women are four times as likely to have an abortion than their white counterparts. And the states with the current abortion bans and likely to have the most restrictive abortion laws in the next weeks, those states have 45% of the population of Black women under 55. So Black women are already hit hard and about to be hit harder. So yeah, I'd love both of your perspectives on how this affects Black women. First, I've never heard those stats. So thank you for enlightening me because I had not heard those. I think it's beyond just how it affects Black women, and it's more so how it affects Black women of a certain socioeconomic status. Because certainly financially, I'm in a position to afford to do what I choose to do, where I choose to do it, if I choose to do it. However, everybody is not so fortunate. So I think that's one thing that we have to consider. And that's kind of across the board, no matter who you are and how you are. But I think the other thing that we have to ask ourselves is specifically about youth, right? Because I think that people don't think about how this may or may not affect youth and the decisions that they make and or the decisions that are made for them. Yeah, I think you're right, for sure. We say this all the time, like Roe v. Wade, we did not need for it to be reversed by any means. Like we needed that to stay in place. However, folks of color, we always understood that Roe for us was the floor. Because a legal right does not necessarily give you access at the end of the day. And so what we saw with Roe is that even though we had this legal right in place up until last Friday, we had so many states that were dealing with so much access issue as it was, right? We have states like Mississippi that have one abortion clinic for the entire state. So there were already so many things like impacting the way that people got care and got what they needed. When I hear these stats, because I hear these stats all the time, and I've heard them in many different variations, that Black women have more abortions than white women. And, you know, the media in particular, they like to run with those stats to paint this picture. Like it paints an interesting picture. 
And so what we try to do with those statistics is actually pull out the stories of what those statistics mean, as opposed to just leaning on the numbers. And so one thing is for sure, there's a lot of white women that got a lot of money that ain't ever getting caught up in the statistics. So we don't really know who's having the abortions in this country. Let's just say that. We truly don't know that. We know that black women have to deal with the system. And so we're always being calculated and tabulated in all the many ways, because that's just how white supremacy works in this country. But we don't know truly what the statistics really look like. And so I try to tell that to people as much as possible. But on top of that, when we think about the fact that black women are having the abortions that they're having, why do we think that black women are having the abortions that they're having? One is their decision, regardless. But two, think about the fact that black women are dying at a rate four times higher than white women in childbirth. Maternal mortality is an issue in this country that black women are not even able to live after bringing children into this world. We also see that black women are making only 63 cents on a dollar. So the wage gap for black women when thinking about family creation in this country is already an issue for them. Black women are watching their children get gunned down in the street. They're watching police brutality plague our communities. We are living in communities without even clean drinking water in some places. So these are all the different decisions that people are having to navigate through when thinking about whether or not they want to bring a child into the world. And so I think that for some people, when they hear these stats, they're like, oh, this is just folks having sex and now they don't want to have babies. No, black women understand what it means to create families, to create their own futures. And so therefore, they are always holding all of these varying things when thinking about whether or not they want to continue a pregnancy or not. So when you say the statistics and we talk about them, we have to give life to those statistics. We have to give story and context to those statistics or the media or other places will start to run with that and create a narrative that's not who we are as Black women. I love that I learned that today because I'm a data person and I think you lose so much. It's almost dehumanizing the statistics. It feeds into the hypersexualization of Black exactly. women. Exactly. And without the conversation about restrictive abortion laws in states with the least access to reproductive health, the least access to childcare, time off, paid family leave, unions. All of it. The list goes on or access to birth control. So like these things go hand in hand. And I love how you keep bringing it back, Monica, to white supremacy. Can you just talk a little bit more about it and why this essentially is a conversation about abortion, but also a conversation about white supremacy? Absolutely. You know, I've been shouting it from the the mountaintop that this fight that we're against, you know, in terms of abortion access is a fight against white supremacy. And I say that because it is important for us to stand, number one, history and what we as black women in particular have had to heal through for decades in this country. Our bodies have been violated, mutilated in so many ways. You know, the fact that our ancestors didn't even have control over their bodies, the fact that we have women like Fannie Lou Hamer that dealt with sterilization. Sterilization was huge. They were stealing our wounds for decades in this country. And the impact of that is still so real on our communities. People are remembering that. And so We have to understand that the way that white supremacy is set up in this country is to make sure that certain people stay in power and certain people don't stay in power. And that's what this fight. 
At State Farm, we're committed to uplifting Black futures. In collaboration with organizations like 100 Black Men and National Urban League, State Farm provides high school students with the opportunity to learn and apply best practice strategies for saving and investing, all while offering academic support, life skills, and exposure to college access programs to prepare these students for life after high school. Check out 100blackmen.org and nul.org to donate and learn more. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. It is really about, it's about making sure that as we are looking at the browning of this country and people of color and young people becoming the voting block they're having to contend with, that black and brown folks are actually becoming the majority in this country. There's some fear there. And I say that with no hesitation. There is some fear around this country actually flipping in the ways that we know that we need it to, to be quite honest. And so this fight is really about a particular group of elite white folks who are like, we want to maintain as much power as possible. So we're going to take away your vote. We're going to take away your ability to control your own destinies. We're going to keep pushing all the things that we can so that we can keep a certain level of power and keep you not in power. That is white supremacy at its best. And so we have to see how all of these things are connected in that way. And we have to talk about it in that way. And I think that we get so tied up as black people, not wanting to talk about sex and bodies and any of these things because they've been considered taboo. I'm a product of the black church. We never talk about that in church. We never talked about it. And almost every young girl was pregnant in my church before graduating high school. That is real. And so we are just dealing with a cultural Mm -hmm. need right now. We need a culture shift. And so I tell people that even in the midst of like what's all the things wrong with this issue and the fight that we're in, it's giving us an opportunity as black people to finally see our sexual and reproductive lives as an essential part to black liberation, not as a side item. And that we have to be willing, willing to have these conversations and not have them behind closed doors anymore because they are using our bodies, our wounds as weapons in their attempt to keep white supremacy in place. And I almost think they're using the shame as a weapon, like the shame that you mentioned in the black church is absolutely being used as a weapon, because if you can't fix a problem that you won't acknowledge or talk about. That's it. I mean, I think you guys are talking about it right now. And I just want to ask the question. So we we dive a little deeper. It's just the work, the topic, the moment of the day is intense, but it's also intensely personal. Right. So how did you both start doing this work and why did you see this as a correct fit to say this is how I'm going to intersect my work and my life and my, you know, my experiences? So I wanted to be a judge since I was seven years old. And, you know, they say sometimes inspiration comes from tragedy. And so for me, that was the case. My father was murdered when I was seven. And from that space, I felt like a wrong had been committed, right? And I felt like I had no voice. And I knew that I never wanted any other little seven-year-old to feel that way. And so for me, being a part of the legal system, and I know folks are always like, oh, Black people shouldn't be a part of the legal system. And I actually argue the opposite, rather, because representation does matter on so many different levels. So for me, being in the system and a part of the system, it was a way to not only help protect my community, right? It was also a way for me to help be the voice that I didn't have. So the voice for other people. And then as I've gone through my career and ascended to being a judge, certainly my position in the legal system now is different, right? It's not my job to advocate on behalf of anybody. It's my job to ensure that 
the system, at least for cases that come before me, is operating fairly, that people are getting their fair shake, that they're getting their day in court, and that they are being heard, they're being respected, and their dignity being protected, no matter what type of case it is, no matter who the person is. And, you know, judges have so much power, as we're seeing now, right? Now people want to pay attention to who the judges are. But when I was running for judge, that's one of the things I used to say to every single community group and every single person I talked to, understand that judges have more power than anybody ever gives them credit for. I make decisions about your everyday life and you don't even know I'm making them. And that carries so much weight. So it's not just about our criminal justice system. It's about our system as a whole, because whether it's a criminal case, a civil case, even down to fighting tickets or HOAs, whatever the case may be, whatever my decision is as the judge on the case impacts your everyday rights. But people don't think about it that way. So I think the other part of this and what the Supreme Court has done, not just with Roe v. Wade, but with some of the other decisions that came down in the last week, is it is highlighted for people really the importance of ensuring that we have judges who represent the pulse of the community and who represent our ideals, ideologies, and what we think. Now, the we in that is subjective because there certainly there are folks who say, oh, I agree with the judges. They're doing a good decision. But that's why I always remind people, if you don't like what's going on in your community, then I urge you to get involved and I urge you to make sure that you're voting at the appropriate time to either vote people in or vote them out as you see necessary. The same with referendums that are on the ballot. We vote them in, we vote them out. But the we in that is those of us who vote. Because the fact of the matter is people say, oh, I'm just not going to vote. But by not voting, you still are impacting the system. You still are (laughs) on some level voting because you are voting potentially against whatever it is that you want by abstaining from such. Yeah. You know, this is such a powerful conversation. I'm so glad and so honored to be in this conversation with Judge Williams. And you're so, so right. This voting thing really, really, really matters. And I think about like what brought me into this work. Truly, because it's, it's a bittersweet moment right now, right? Like we saw Justice Kentanji getting confirmed and it's like, yes, come on, black women, let's do it. Let's do it. And yet I also have this same energy, like F the courts at the same time, because the courts were not necessarily set up to save us. And so it's like, we have to find that balance. And I think that what Judge Williams is talking about is right on point. Like we have to be able to control who's in these seats so that we can actually use this system in the way that democracy is supposed to run. But that's not the way it's set up right now. So it's a hard balance for folks. I just want to acknowledge that because it is a hard balance sometimes. And when I think about what brought me to this work, y'all, I'm going to tell you the real, real story. I grew up in rural North Carolina, like one stoplight town. Okay, I was that young girl that started having sex at a very young age, like 13 years old. The first time I had sex was with someone who was like way older than me, should not have been having sex with me. I didn't even know what statutory rape meant because I didn't think I was being coerced because I was just wanting to be liked. I was just wanting to be loved. And so that took me down this very interesting journey as a very young preteen and adolescent of like not really understanding what it meant to have control of my own body. And that really set me up. That was the starting point for me when thinking about my journey to what has now become my political home of reproductive justice. You know, again, I told you all about, you know, I was this church girl, too. So I was living this double life because I was out here in these streets. But I was in the church every Sunday with my little prim and properness on and seeing my friends get pregnant. 
Right. And I'm like, yo, I know I'm having sex, too. Why y'all not wearing condoms at least? And people were scared to go up in the store to get the condoms. So I was becoming a peer educator, like an unofficial one, going in the store, getting condoms for my friends because we were determined to have sex. I was like, we have to also protect ourselves. And I knew that if I got pregnant in my rural town, the way it was set up for me in my mind was that I was never going to leave. And so I was like, I did not want to get trapped in Union County. So I was like, I'm going to have sex. But I'm going to try my best not to get pregnant because for me, that equaled I would never leave to then be able to determine what I wanted to do with my life. And when I did make my way out, I went to an HBCU, mad love to HBCU grads. I came out while I was in school. I had no representation around me around what that meant as a black lesbian. The other issues around bodily autonomy continue to like really surface for me. What does it mean to be this black lesbian living in this country, being on this campus, not feeling safe because of me standing out for who I was. And then a friend of mine came to me. She was pregnant. She did not want to be pregnant. She's like, Monica, I know that you kind of organized and you talking about this stuff. Can you go with me to the abortion clinic? Cause I don't want to have a kid. And I was like, whoa, you have an abortion. I thought every black girl had their baby. What do you mean? And she's like, I don't want to be pregnant. And it was my first time having to contend those narratives that I was still carrying with me from my small town. I went with my friend to have this abortion. I saw these protesters outside. And I was like, are you kidding me? Just because I'm making my own decision, you're going to tell me no? And so these points along my journey, and then also in the midst of that, I also dealt with sexual assault, a very traumatic experience around that. And so at the root of all of my work from coming out to supporting friends, you know, getting an abortion, all of the different things were all rooted in like my desire to live in a world where I knew that my body was safe, that I can make my own decisions around my body that I was able to live the life that I wanted to live. And so as I was journeying through my social justice work, it was finding these black women who were able to talk about it from that way in this reproductive justice frame that allowed me to find my place and my political home in this movement. So I tell these pieces of my story for black women to understand that we all have a story to tell. We all have a story to tell around our sexual and reproductive lives. And this moment that we're in is calling on us to bring those stories and those narratives to the surface so we can actually start to organize with each other around this issue. This Roe v. Wade is just the tip of the iceberg, y'all. They are committed to rolling back all of our stuff. We've seen it with voting rights. We've seen it with transgender kids and youth. We're seeing it with gay marriage. Clarence Thomas, punk ass. I'm sorry, can I say that? Yes, you can. Thank Especially you. When it's true. His punk ass, he gave us an indication of like what they're trying to roll back. If this is not a call to action for everybody, whether you believe it, because I tell black people all the time, I don't care if you believe in abortion or not. It's just not your decision to then police someone else's ability to be able to make their own decision. Believe what you want. Don't have one if you don't want to. We can't live in a country where we don't have access to safe and legal abortion so that people will not die when trying to make their own decisions about their bodies and their futures. Yeah. The phrase that really hits home for me is they didn't ban abortions. They banned safe and legal ones because people will still have abortions. It's a safety issue that we just lost. So thank you for sharing your stories. And what really hits home for me is you started your journey so early in terms of 13, organizing your friends, this experience you had in college. So you found this political home so early and judge you talked about wanting to be a judge since you were seven. So all of you have been in this for decades. What comes up for me is this is emotionally taxing. How have you sustained engagement in what is ultimately a struggle? 
Like, how have you seen engagement as an activist, as someone as a part of this legal fight? What's kept you going? For me, it's been self-care and passion. I think when you're passionate about what you do and passionate about the work that you do, it becomes less work. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't get to be emotionally taxing. I sit and listen to the worst parts of society on a daily basis, to people who are at their very, very worst moment, to the ugliest sides of human nature, et cetera. And so self-care is so super important. And one of the things that I've been super just glad to see is people now taking a more active role in having the conversation about self-care. Because so long we've been taught that self-care was really being selfish, Mm -hmm. but really self-care is selfless. And that's what allows folks in whatever field the opportunity to be able to continue to do what they do on a daily basis. Because otherwise you can't pour from an empty picture. And that's also part of what we see when we look at mental health as a whole across this country and what's going on with folks. A lot of people are being told it's not okay for you to take a break. It's not okay for you to say, I'm tired. It's not okay for you to say, you know what? Today is just not the day, right? We're told that. And so that superwoman complex comes into place. I can only speak from a female perspective. I'm not a man, Um, but I'm sure that they have a Superman complex. But that superwoman complex comes into place, and especially for Black women, because we are told and programmed that we just have to do and keep going. If you start whining, it's like, hey, 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 be strong, push forward, keep it going. The weight of the world is on your shoulders, and that's not what we need to be absorbing. But isn't it harder to have that self-care routine when you are passionate? Because you're like, I love this work. I see the end. It is. I want to just tell y'all my story on this. I didn't have one. I was running on all cylinders for years. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was talking about me having a self-care regimen because it sounded cute. And I was like, self-care, I'm getting my nails done. I'm getting my feet done, yada, yada, yada. And last year, you good folks, I had a complete breaking moment. Mm-hmm. I was in a brain fog. The burnout was real. I wasn't sleeping. Like I was very scared for my mental health. And it took a wellness team of folks coming to get me because I was still trying to push past it. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Because the work is so demanding and it took other people seeing me knowing me to say, if you don't stop, we are going to lose you. It sounds like an intervention happened. It was a complete intervention. That is love. That is love. So I tell y'all, it is so important to have people around you who love you, who know you, who want the best for you and the same, and you're doing the Mm -hmm. same thing for them. You've got to have an accountability circle because the self-care, like Judge Williams said, is so important. But if you ain't got somebody holding you accountable to that, For me, it just became something I talked Mm -hmm. about and not something I did. So that has been my saving grace in this work. You know, I have an incredible personal trainer. I have an incredible doctor and team. I have an incredible makeup artist, doggone it, because she's like, girl, we're not going to have you out here looking a mess, even though you may be tired. Like You'll be pro-abortion with laid edges. With laid edges and lashes at the end (laughs) of the day. So I just think that it takes those people willing to invest in you and you doing the same for them. That will help sustain you in this work. That is the only way I made it out of my darkest times. And it's the only way that y'all are having a Monica sitting here talking to y'all today, you know, with some good sense in her head, because I had that moment where I had to really get myself together to be able to do. I feel like my ancestors set me up for this moment right now, though. So 
So I had to have that breaking moment, you know, but here we are. Here we are. Let's go. Yes. I know. I love it. Love that. (laughs) And what you guys are saying throughout all of this is really just like having folks see the value in you. So whether that be through the work you're doing, pro, not pro choice and abortion or not, what you all are doing on a day-to-day basis and how you all are pouring into your own selves or having folks say, wait a second, I need you to pour into your own self because you are valuable. And I see the value that you're bringing to the world and the work that you're doing. And I think that's, that's such an important piece to mention. So we have one final question that we ask all our guests, and I want to make sure that we ask you that too. What is your dream for Black women? What's your dream for Black women? Let's hear it. My dream for Black women is to live authentically and to not feel like we have to conform to what the world tells us. We all have been in a position where we're told, this is what you have to do. This is what you need to do, et cetera, et cetera. And while there may be some merit to some of that stuff, oftentimes what that means is that sometimes our kids, our our young ladies, and even us have an imposter syndrome that we're looking at ourselves like, wait a minute, am I wrong or am I not enough? That part, am I not enough? Because I don't fit into what society, my friends, my family, et cetera, are telling me to to do, say, et cetera. I do a lot of work with kids also. And I tell the young ladies and the young men, but specifically the young ladies all the time, I say to them, listen, you got to love yourself before you can love anybody else. And love does not come externally. It does not come from, and I love your story, Monica. I love it. It doesn't come from some little boy kissing on you, telling you're pretty, whatever the case may be. It comes from inside. It comes from you. And you've got to develop that early. Otherwise, life is going to set you up for a whole other course. So that's what I want for Black women, to live authentically and be happy and have joy, period. Yes. I say yes and ashe and amen and namaste (laughs) to all of that. And I also say that, you know, this time y'all has called me to have to think about my security very differently. Like just my person moving around in the world. Because I talk about things like white supremacy and abortion and bodies and sex and all these things that people don't like. And so it's one thing to have like white, crazy antis coming at me, but also black folks come at me too. And it's a very hard thing to navigate. And so when I think about what I want most for black women right now, it's kind of rooted in what Nina Simone said when she was asked, what does freedom mean? She's like, it means to live with no fear. And so what I want for black women is for us to be able to live in a world where we have no fear. If we had no fear, then we would be able to have the freedom the pleasure, the abundance, the life. We would have everything that we need. And so I'm hoping that I'm doing the work along with so many other people to create a world where we have no fear, that we can then live our most abundant, beautiful, healthy, loving lives and be the queens and goddesses and beautiful folks that we have been called to be on this planet. That is, that's my wish for black women and that we trust each other enough and ourselves enough to believe that we can have that. A thousand amens to that. Trust yourself enough. You know, we're sitting with people who are doing the work and we want the folks listening to know, what does that mean? How can I jump in? Whether you're for, against, in the middle, just, just how can you step in? What is something that you can say very quickly? Cause sometimes when we say that folks lead us to like, five different PDFs and websites and this and that, right? But what is something that we can do, the folks listening can do to just get in the game? Right now, you can just follow Sister Song. Sister Song is a national, Southern-based national organization of Black and Brown folks working together around all these issues. We will get you plugged in. You just need to follow us. 
at SisterSong underscore W-O-C everywhere. At SisterSong W-O-C underscore W-O-C everywhere. We have petitions for you to sign. We got events for you to show up at. We got street teams for you to join. We got educational materials for you. We'll give you all the things that you want in whatever way that you want to get tapped in. And the last thing I will say is we have our national conference. Let's talk about sex, which is the largest sexual and reproductive health conference created by black folks, led by folks of color in this country, going down in Dallas, Texas, August 26th to the 29th. You will find that on Sister Love Song it. at Sister Song underscore W-O-C. Come get in this work. Yes. All right. Judge Williams, what about you? How do you follow that? Wow. So, <laughs> you know, as a judge, our judicial code of conduct, I ethically cannot comment on personal views, whether I'm for or against something. That's just what the the judicial code of conduct says. Right. So my leave or ask of people would be to pay attention, to not stick your head in the sand and to get involved. Because if you do those things in whatever cause or whatever side you fall on on the cause, woman power is what's needed, not talking power. Talking power is great, but behind that talking has to be some action. And whatever it is, whether it's voting rights, civil rights, LGBTQIA plus rights, reproductive rights, whatever it is, get involved. Because if you don't get involved, your voice gets silent, silenced, excuse me, and you are told what to do versus being a part of the plan and what to do. Get involved. Thank you so much, y'all, for getting involved with us today. Thank you all for doing this. Yes. I love it. Thank you both. Thank you for your wisdom and your brilliance. And we love the conversation today. Thanks again. Thank y'all for having us. Now that's a wrap for our guests, but not for our episode. Keep listening as we share our insights and all our thoughts on what we just discussed. So you know what, Ty? Let's hop right into it. This is MTM Reflections, where we debrief our segment. We talk about the guests, we talk about our own opinions, and we talk about some facts on these topics that we know are super important to you, to us, and to the culture. You said something that like made me pull back. You were like, whether you're for or against or in the middle. And I was like, I'm not talking to people who are against. Like, this is one of these topics that gets me so riled up and emotional and angry. I'm literally not in a place to engage with people who are anti-abortion. So I am going to sit with that. I'm going to drink some tea and like pray. But that's what came up for me because that's that's just how much this bodily autonomy of Black women is important to me. My whole thing is it's more about me. It's a question and it's a fight around choice and just giving the choice. So that's why I said it. it's not a necessarily a thing where it's like, I think folks need to question themselves if they're for or against or not and not need to be ostracized if they're, they're against it. You know, if they're against abortion, it's more along the lines of because you're against or because you're for or in the middle. The question to me and the nature of the day is give folks the choice <laughs> to then decide what they want to do individually, because that I think is what democracy is, is giving the choice, not making the choice one way or the other. You know, I'm kind of more on like the Judge Shamila side. I'm not a judge, but clearly I'm more like, listen, it's not about my personal opinion. It's more about folks need to have the option to think critically about what they want and then have the option to make that action afterwards. I don't know. I really think it is about your personal mm. opinion. I think as a Black woman, you get to take a stand and be fully engaged with something that's important right. to you. I think sometimes we're told that the middle of the road is like a, a genteel place mm. to be. But I think that being in the middle of the road is what maintains the status quo, 
which in this moment is oppressive to black women, especially when it comes to abortion. But for me, for many other issues, I think when people are that middle of the road, it just supports the status quo, which does not support the power of black women. So I offer you and the listeners to sit with that. And I'm going to go take some deep (laughs) breaths because it's important. It's important. And it's fresh too. You know, it's one of those things as well. Like I loved what Monica was saying. And because that's how I think about Roe v. Wade as well. It truly is the tip of the iceberg. Like this is just, this is the floor. This is the floor when it comes to reproductive rights. It's important, but this is, I don't want this subject and where we're on, where we're at right now to take away from the fact of there's so many different aspects and so many different things to really tackle when it comes to reproductive rights and access in America, specifically to black women. Like, you know, I talked about the idea of like me working at an abortion clinic and this is Roe v. Wade was not even a question for us. It was kind of like this was before the elections, before the 2016 elections and all of that, I should say, to be specific. And yet the questions, the the qualms, the just the the scheduling that I had to do on a day-to-day basis showed me it's beyond choice. So that's where I'm coming from. It's beyond choice. It's more along like, okay, you say yes, you say no, and then what? <laughs> it's the and then what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I told you earlier, my motto was abortion on demand without question. That's, that's, you did. That's how go. I roll. And I'm so glad you did that work supporting women. So that's powerful that you had that experience. It was powerful, definitely. And it's definitely eye-opening, right? I think for me, it's just all around, like, just people should have the opportunity to be people. That oftentimes means in a democracy, in this society that we're in, to have the power and the autonomy to say what I want or what I don't want. And then being able to say, how can I act on that one way or the other? You know, Mm -hmm. it is what it is. But this was definitely... This is a good good one. one. (laughs) We needed this. We needed this. Thank you for being with me on this journey. Yes, this is a good one. Of course, like we always say, you guys, this is just the beginning of monuments to me. What we're going to do and what we have been doing already has shown to be monumental. So definitely be sure to listen to our episodes and catch up and keep up with us at revolt.com or our individual socials that will display below. So thank you so much for joining us and let us know your opinions. I mean, this is something that affects everyone you know, man, woman in between. So definitely get in the game and, and let us know what you think. Yes. I can't wait to connect with the audience. Leave us a review and share the podcast with a friend. Thank you all. Thank you for tuning into Monuments to Me. A special thank you to Revolt for creating the space for Black women to have important conversations. If you liked what you heard today, and we are so sure that you did, then subscribe, leave a review, and tell a friend to tell a friend about your new favorite podcast. Head over to Revolt.com to stay connected to all things Monuments to Me. And follow your hosts, Pi and Aquila, on Instagram. The link is in the show notes. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois.